Hello, this is Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center, and we're finally back with a new season of Liberty Under Law, the Jackson Center's podcast. We hope you enjoy the 2022 season of episodes. We look forward to your comments and your thoughts. And if there are issues you are interested in exploring through the lens of Robert H. Jackson, please let us know at info at roberthjackson.org. Welcome to Liberty Under Law, the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center, a nonprofit organization that exists to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, United States Supreme Court Justice and the Chief United States Prosecutor for the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg. This podcast explores and examines contemporary and historic issues of equality, fairness, and justice with a Jacksonian lens through in-depth conversations with experts, academics, innovators, and those doing boots-on-the-ground work. I am your host, Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center. Welcome to Tea Time with the Jackson Center. I am Kristen McMahon, and I have the pleasure of serving as the president of the Robert H. Jackson Center in Jamestown, New York. We envision a world where the universal principles of equality, fairness, and justice prevail. Over the last few years, we have noticed an increase in the number of questions regarding democracy, its institutions, civic responsibilities, and how all of these interact and mesh. The Jackson Center's program theme this year is Democracy on Trial, and we are focused on the challenges to, pressures on, and opportunities for democracy and democratic institutions, both here in the United States and around the world. These are not new questions. And Robert H. Jackson wrote and spoke on democracy during his tenures as the United States Attorney General, United States Supreme Court Justice, and as the Chief United States Prosecutor at Nuremberg. So during this year, we will be convening conversations about democracy, US and global institutions, voting rights, the United States Supreme Court, and more. This year, there will be only one tea time each month on the fourth Thursday. And we hope each of these programs inspires you to have conversations with your family, friends, and colleagues, and to seek out ways for additional education and to make change in your communities. For those of you watching live, remember you can ask your questions at any time in the Facebook chat. So today I am thrilled to have these particular guests for our first 2022 Tea Time, because I think this will be a helpful orientation for our entire year. So let me introduce Staffan Lindbergh, who is a professor of political science and the director of the VDEM Institute at the University of Gothenburg, Sweden. He is also a founding principal investigator of Varieties of Democracy. He is the author of Democracy and Elections in Africa, published in 2006, and a co-author of Varieties of Democracy, published in 2020, as well as other books and more than 60 articles on issues such as democracy, elections, democratization, autocratization, which is a word I needed to practice saying many, many times, accountability, women's representation, and voting behavior. He is currently leading several large research projects, including failing and successful sequences of democratization, 
varieties of autocratization and the case for democracy. And he also has extensive experience as a consultant on development and democracy, and as an advisor to international organizations, ministries, and state authorities. We are also joined by Kelly Morrison, who is a postdoctoral research fellow at the Varieties of Democracy Institute. Her research evaluates the connection between democratic institutions, human rights, and political violence, and is forthcoming in the Journal of Politics. She earned her PhD in political science from the University of Pittsburgh in 2021. So in 1940, then US Attorney General Robert H. Jackson gave a speech on democracy where he said, democracy, even in the world of today, has different meanings in different contexts. And that feels like a really great place to start our conversation with both of you today. So welcome to Tea Time. Thank you. Thank you very much. So I like to start each of our conversations with a little bit of groundwork so people understand uh, where we're coming from. And so I thought obviously here for to start with this would be uh, to give our audience understanding of why were the VDEM Institute and the VDEM project established? Yeah, um, let me start since I was there found in the founding and uh, I don't know, Kelly, you were not in the grad program yet even. So the Varieties of Democracy project was started in 2008-9, gradually. It, it was established because we were a group of scholars, some of us in Europe, some of us in, in America and Latin America and beyond, who were very dissatisfied with the way the existing measures of democracy were uh, done and what they actually measured. So without going into those, um, we set out to measure democracy in what we believe would be the appropriate way uh, of thinking about democracy and how to get good measures of it. And then it took a number of years, as, as always with these big things, uh, to sort of get a big enough group together and and uh, hammer out the, the details. And then the VDEM Institute was uh, gradually built um, between 2012 to 15. And from 2015, it, it really became the sort of headquarters for this large international collaboration for, for the Varieties of Democracy uh, project. And the, the point with the Institute was really to make it, have it make VDEM or Varieties of Democracy to have an institutional home and a headquarters that could sustain this effort over many years. That makes sense. So I, I think maybe what is a, a basic question, but why, why do we need to study democracy? You know, I, I feel like most of our audience probably thinks they have a good handle on what democracy is. And so I would love to hear from you and Kelly, perhaps I'll start with you since this is a very recent you know, study, probably a prolonged study with the PhD work, but, but why, why should we study democracy? Yeah, sure. So I think we can think of two main reasons to study democracy. Um, and the first is normative. So uh, we have reason to think that democracy is a good outcome because citizens are more engaged in the political process. Um, they have the opportunity to shape how their leaders behave, what sort of policies are going to be enacted in their country. 
Um, they have more freedom to express their beliefs and opinions and organize around the causes that matter to them. And so I think from a from a normative perspective, these are things that we at the Institute are passionate about and probably many of your listeners as well. And so we want to understand, you know, what sort of institutions facilitate democratic practices and where are these practices uh, improving around the world and where are they declining? And so that's what we work on at the Institute. And I think we'll talk more about this later in the conversation. Um, but another important reason to study uh, democracy, which we've been talking a lot at the Institute about, is because we know that democracy is also associated with a lot of good outcomes that a lot of people care about from a practical perspective. Um, so in our Case for Democracy initiative, uh, we show how democracy improves economic outcomes, more equality for women, more peace uh, in terms of civil conflict and other forms of violence, um, and a number of other outcomes. And so it's important to understand how democratic institutions come about also because they help to facilitate all of these other important societal outcomes. And, and if I may please just uh, add a little bit uh, to, to, to um, the first point. I mean, if you think about United States, at least now with Biden back in office, is actively trying to support democracy in the world and spend a lot of money on it. Um, through USAID and through other initiatives, National Democratic Institute, the, the International Republican Institute, and so on. And they need guidance of how to support democracy to develop. And in order to do that, we need to have some science on uh, what makes countries become more democratic and what doesn't. So there is also sort of a very practical policy, pra practical uh, uh, aspect to this. Well, and Stefan, you had mentioned in your uh, your opening conversation about why the varieties of democracy uh, was created was that there were measures that you thought better expressed or better perhaps provided guidance on, on democracy. And so I think this will tie into my next question as well, but I'm curious as to what some of those are. And, you know, my recollection from, from my research was they can be somewhat grouped into larger categories, although there are some, some subsets there. But when we start talking about varieties of democracy, and I, I mentioned this to both of you, I think that will come as a surprise to our audience as well, that mm. we tend to think of democracy as kind of very black and white, you either are or you're not, but that, that, is, that is not clearly the only way that we can look at democracy. Yeah, so let me try and put it this way. At the national level, every type of democracy, if you like, um, must have the core which we refer to as electoral democracy, you know, free and fair, clean elections that come back and we're in, a, in an environment of media freedom so people can be informed about what the candidates want to do and what they have done if they are in office. And there's freedom of speech and freedom of association. So if you want to start a political party or you want to run for office, you can do that. And that's sort of the core, the vertical accountability between voters and their elected representatives. Because at a national scale, there is no way to go around this with representatives, right? We cannot all the time, all of us be engaged in all the political decisions that are going to be, have to be taken in, in a modern society. So we elect them. And then by way of elections, we can throw the rascals out, as it were, um, uh, if, if we don't like what they're doing. And we think somebody else can do it better. 
And that's sort of the core and every variety needs to have that core. But then there's um, both long traditions in the, in, the, in the writings about democracy going back 200 years or more about that you can beyond that, you can emphasize different values. And, and there are also different practices in the world. So in, in the United States, you're influenced very much by the liberal tradition or in thinking of democracy. And, and here is the, 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 the worry is that the majority will start to oppress the minority and, and do away with the individual liberties and, and that sort of thing. So you need to constrain power, right? And make sure they don't do too much. So then you have this uh, system with presidential elections and then separate elections for Congress, right? And the Congress can, can, can exercise uh, constraints on the executive uh, that you are very well aware of, I guess, today with both under Obama and then again now with Biden. You can't get your policies through. And then there's also a strong legislature with the Supreme Court that can also put limits on what the executive can do, right? And, and rule that certain actions are unconstitutional and all that. That's about constraining power to preserve the individual liberties. If you go to a country like the United Kingdom, they're influenced by what we call the majoritarian tradition. There the concern is to say, okay, electoral democracy is good, but it's not enough. Because if we have too many political parties or, and nobody gets a majority, you, get, you can't get coalitions together, then there are no decisions taken. And then the people are not ruling. Democracy is ruled by the people. So if there are no decisions, they are not ruling. So we need governability. So instead, they try to concentrate power, right? They have single member districts, just like you have in the United States, but in a parliamentary system, no president. And that typically means, without going into the technical details, typically means with 40% of the votes, you in the UK typically get 60% of the seats in the legislature. And every time the prime minister brings a bill to the house, it will pass, right? That's governability. Then the people are ruling, right? So it's different ideas about what's important beyond the electoral vertical accountability. And then we have other traditions. Uh, I'm not gonna go into all the details and all of them maybe, but you know, participatory democracy about people having some influence uh, between elections as well. And, and with direct, uh, uh, direct um, uh, uh, voting on issues, if you can, such as uh, they have a lot in Switzerland. And then you have, in the Northern Europe, we are much more influenced by the egalitarian tradition. And so there the idea is, okay, so you have electoral democracy, it's good, but it's not enough because all those rights are structured by socioeconomic conditions. And I used to tease Americans with saying, you know, if you don't have access to healthcare, equally good, high quality healthcare across the population, then with low uh, access to healthcare, you have a higher probability of dying. If you die, you can't vote, right? Um, so healthcare, access to healthcare structures how much of your political rights you have, right? And, and then we know education is another big predictor of that. And, and in also access to some basic 
guaranteed income. So you're not afraid of what your employer, you know, if, if you're too dependent on your employer, your employer can tell you to vote for this party, otherwise you get kicked out, that sort of thing. So you need a wide sort of social protection system, uh, equality in healthcare and education, so that people's political rights are equal. So, so that's what the varieties of democracy is about, is to measure these different ideas and then their implementation in different parts of the world of what what's important going beyond the sort of electoral arena. That makes sense. So I, I, one of the reasons I thought uh, you both would be interesting to talk to as our first speakers this year was because of a report that you started producing about five years ago, if I'm remembering correctly. So every March, you release your analysis of democracy on a, on a global scale. Um, so the democracy report, obviously the most recent one we have is the 2021, although you're, I know you're working on the, uh, the 2022 version of this, but I was especially struck by the title of the democracy report of 2021, which is autocratization turns viral. I wasn't really kidding about how often I've pronounced, practiced pronouncing autocratization, just to make sure I was getting that correct. <laughs> um, you know, and I know that we're talking about a report that's almost a year old at this point, and obviously was focused on 2020, which was a, a very weird year for, for the global community. But I really would like to get a sense from you as to what sort of shape is democracy in on the global stage? Um, are we are we trending more democratic? Are we trending less democratic? Uh, just would love to hear that that baseline thought. Sure. Yeah. So I mean, the unfortunate main finding of of our most recent data is that autocracy is spreading. It's increasing around the world, both in terms of the number of countries that are autocratic, that we consider to be autocracies, and also in terms of the share of the world's population that is living in countries with autocratic governments. So for instance, between 2010 and 2020, we saw that the share of the world population living in autocracies increased from 48% in 2010 to 68% in 2020. So this is levels of autocracy that we haven't seen since about the 1990s. So this is really a concerning development that we've been able to track in our data releases each year. So maybe Stefan wants to talk more about the, the findings. Yeah, and the, and the flip side of that is also illustrative. At the height of the spread of democracy in the world recently, which was in the mid-1990s, some listeners may just have been born around that time, but uh, it's recent for us, right? But uh, at at the uh, you know at the after the end of the Cold War, Soviet Union had fallen apart, uh, lots of new independent states, and then that wave also spread to uh, large portions of Africa and Asia. At the height of it, there were seventy two countries in the world moving ahead, democratizing at the same time. That number in our last report, was down to 16. That's a pretty steep slope downwards. And those 16 countries only are home to only 4% of the population. So they're also small, tiny countries that mean very little sort of, I mean, it's, it's good for them and all that, but in a, on a global scene, they don't mean that much. Right? Whereas the autocratizing countries that Kelly talked about, they are typically also large countries with big populations and, and 
regional and sometimes global influence. We're talking about India, 1.4 billion people. Brazil, a big economic and political power in the whole of Latin America. Uh, we're talking about Turkey and we're talking about Hungary and we're talking about a country like Philippines that in Southeast Asia is very important. So large populations, big important countries that tend then to drag others with them. Well, and let's take a step back as well, because um, you both have mentioned democratizing and autocratizing. And so I want to make sure that our audience understands what does that mean in terms of, of how you all are looking at democracy and autocracy around the world. So Kelly, would you like to start with that explanation? Yeah, so the primary measure that we use to, to assess uh, levels of democracy is our liberal democracy index. Um, and this measures things like whether a country has elections and also how free and fair those elections are, but also as well as Safran was saying and in, in discussing what the varieties of democracy are, we also measure whether individual rights and liberties are protected and also um, the extent to which the executive is constrained by other branches of government. And so the main thing that we're looking at in our, in our report each year is whether this measure that we have has uh, changed both significantly and substantially. So these figures that we're talking about um, refer to changes that are significantly different from year to year in, in the statistical sense, but also that are changing on relatively high levels of the of the index as a whole. So that's what we're looking at. And so I want to hopefully put a couple of the numbers that, that Stefan, you just uh, mentioned into a little bit of context to make sure I understand it. So when we talk about 16 countries at the moment democratizing, that doesn't include those who might already be listed as a liberal democracy or as an electoral democracy. Those are those are 16 countries that are making the shift, as Kelly's just described it, versus the 72 that were making that shift 30-ish or so years ago. Yeah, it's very. I mean, it's a it's a good point, and it's it's uh, important to keep in mind there are sort of two two ways to slice the world if you like right you can either look at oh is this country a democracy or not now or even a liberal democracy or sort of just minimum democracy electoral democracy or is it an autocracy right now but then you can also look at oh regardless of where they are what type of regime they are in what direction are they moving are they sort of flat you know or uh, as in the u.s uh, over the last few years going down, and that's the autocratizing, right? Just the opposite to uh, democratizing. So those are two sort of different things. So I was talking about the movements and, and Kelly before that was talking about the state. So I, I think one other thing that struck me in the most recent report is that we're, that you are calling this the third wave of autocratization. And so I want to give our audience a little bit of context about that. So if you could give some, some thoughts, your thoughts on what were the first two waves. So we sort of understand where is this fitting in that, that global scheme. When we look at the world from the 1800s and onwards, basically, you know, there was a first a long, slow wave of democratizing countries or democratization roughly in the 1850s into uh, then the around 1920, 
a lot of countries in what now Europe and uh, so on democratized. Um, and then we had the 1920s into the 30s with the spread of fascism and Nazism in, in different parts of Europe and then leading into World War II. And that was the first wave of autocratization. Right? So democracy was lost in a large number of cases. And then after, after the end of the, the, the Second World War, then we had this other sort of democratization wave. So a lot of, uh, um, well, countries that became free again and democratic after World War II, including then the democratization of Japan and re-democratization of, of Germany. And, and, and then new countries that became independent in the late 50s into the 60s in Africa and Asia. And so they democratized. They didn't necessarily become good democracies, right? But they sort of improved. And then there was another back sliding wave or autocratization wave in the 1960s into the 70s. Those were a lot of military coups in Latin America, in Africa, in Asia, but also declaration of one party states. And then the third wave of democratization, we say usually start in, started, we usually say they started in 1974, that was Portugal with the Carnation Revolution. And then uh, dictatorships also fell then in across Southern Europe, so with Spain and Greece and so on. And then that spread to Latin America and eventually then with the fall of Soviet Union and then Africa and Asia again democratized. So that was the third wave. And then starting basically with Putin coming to power in Russia, 98, 99, the wave turned around again, right? And first in Russia and then many of the Russian Republic, former Soviet republics slid back. And then that started to affect other countries uh, across the world. So from around 2000, we can see now in hindsight, we didn't know then, but we can see in, in hindsight, we can tell that it sort of started in earnest there. And the last 10 years have really been a pronounced uh, wave and an accelerating wave of autocratization across the world. Is this sort of contraction and expansion normal? It, you know, we're, we're talking about waves of this, so this seems to be something that the world goes through. Is there ever a concern that there will be a wave of autocratization that we won't come out of, you know, or so, so I, I'm trying to, to understand in terms of, in terms of the study and, and what we want to do with this, what, what should we be learning from this expansion and contraction? Kelly, would you uh, like Yeah, I can, that's a really hard question because there's so much uncertainty, of course, about, you know, these macro level, level trends, um, but we do kind of see these cycles of waves. I think what's interesting is that uh, or one thing that's interesting is is the most recent wave of autocratization has been very distinct compared to previous waves. So as Stefan was saying in previous waves, one of the most common uh, ways that democracies broke down or transitioned to autocracy was via military coup. So this was very sudden rapid change from a democracy to an autocratic form of governance. But what uh, research from Stefan and others at the Institute has demonstrated 
is that in this more recent trend of autocratization, the process is a lot more gradual. Um, so we're seeing um, increases in levels of polarization across cases um, and the erosion of more informal institutions, free media and free civil society. Um, so these are sort of the first warning signs of the most recent wave of autocratization. Um, and then once sort of le leaders with illiberal intentions come to power, then later they, they might start to attack uh, more formal institutions like the judiciary or the legislature. Um, and so I think one one thing while noting the uncertainty in these processes is that your listeners might uh, want to be aware of this pattern and, and attuned to these sort of warning signs of autocratization and, and sort of, I think it's intentional actions that can curb these processes and, and facilitate democracy, but it requires a lot of engagement and it's not something people can be passive about. It reminds me there's an analogy of, I'm pretty sure it's a frog in a pot of boiling water that it doesn't mm -hmm. realize it's being boiled because the heat turns up gradually. And so that's, that's kind of the analogy that came to mind as you were describing this. But I also, uh, Kelly, you were making some important points and, and the 2021 report spells these out quite nicely as well. So I would love for you uh, or, or Stefan to, to step through sort of how, how are we seeing autocratization unfold at the moment. You mentioned, you know, there's first the restriction and control on the media. And then and then what are we seeing from there? Yeah, so it's almost as if uh, Vladimir Putin in Russia created a dictator's playbook back in the early 2000s. And then other leaders are are following that playbook. Uh, and we know they also talk to each other and they learn from each other and so on and so forth. So so it may not be coincidental. And you may recognize some of this in the United States uh, in their very recent history. And we would not be the only ones to say that. Uh, a lot of American academics uh, like Stephen Levitsky at Harvard and Dan Ziblatt have, uh, I mean, in their, their famous book, uh, How Democracies Die, pointed this out. And so you have to think about if, if you are a wannabe dictator in a relatively democratic country, and this is sort of a, also a signifier or a very common thing that we see in the current wave of autocratization that we haven't seen before in history, right? That it's leaders and parties who came into power with via democratic elections, not with a lot of fraud or anything, but democratically elected leaders that then start to undermine democracy and do away with it, right? And what you want to do first, I mean, what I would want to do first, if if I was such a leader, is to contain and, and uh, constrict and make irrelevant the ones that can sort of shout about what you're doing. And that's the media. And you saw such efforts under Trump in the United States as well. Bolsonaro is doing it in Brazil. Uh, Putin, he killed journalists just to sh show that, you know, don't stick your neck out. Uh, that's what uh, uh, Orban has been doing in Hungary, not by uh, sort of um, a lot of violent measures, but by he and his clientele controlling 98% of the media. So how much freedom of, of expression is there? Same with Modi in India. That's where you start. And then the second thing dictators, wannabe dictators worry about is popular mobilization, that people go out into the street and protest and not go away. And for good reasons, because we know that's very effective uh, as well. So 
the next thing you want to control is civil society and oppress them. And you can do that. It doesn't necessarily have to be killing people or that sort of thing. There are all kinds of, of uh, means you can use. You can outlaw certain organizations. You can accuse them for tax fraud. And you, you can visit people, key people at night and tell them to be careful and that sort of thing. So that's the sort of comes together with a containing and oppressing the media and at the same time, civil society. Once you have those under more or less control, or at least contained to some extent, then you also want to make sure that you prepare the ground for, for further measures, right? And here's where polarization comes in. And you've seen that a lot in the United States. And that worries me actually a lot about the future for democracy in the United States. This extreme polarization so you can make your supporters believe that if the other side win, they're basically going to kill you or your way of life is going to disappear. They are existential threat because then you have good backing from your supporters to attack those people, constrain their civil liberties. Worst case, I mean, in the extreme, think Nazi Germany putting them in concentration camps, right? Or as in Rwanda, genocide. That's the sort of the extreme. But so then once you have enough polarization, then and then propaganda, uh, uh, sort of these fake news that you can create a new story about who are the scapegoats that you're going to attack. Then you can start attacking the formal institutions, the judiciary system, undermine it, infiltrate it, put your people there. And as Kelly was also talking about, then sort of things like even the elections and, and, and stay in power even if you lose, right? That rings a bell maybe also at home in the United States, but uh, it's, it's sort of often, often the sequence. And it looks very, very similar in this recent wave of autocratization across from Philippines and Duterte to Brazil and United States and Hungary and India and so on. To pick up on something you said, and it's something we have been thinking through here at the Jackson Center, is how either side of our political process at this point, it's a winner take all, that we seem to have lost the art of compromise and that it's, if everybody goes home a little bit unhappy, that's probably the best result for everyone. And we seem now to, if I can't have it my way, you don't get anything of your way either. And that for me, just as a, as a, observer and obviously participant in our in our democracy, I find particularly troubling that it feels like everything stalls then as opposed to that may not be the full result I wanted, but if we're inching down the road, then that feels good. Yeah. And not not only that, you have another danger coupled with it. I've said lately in a number of public places that democracy dies with the lies. Democracy presupposes that we have agreements on basic facts. Otherwise, if you can lie and get away with it, there is no way for that vertical accountability even that we have elections for to work. If the people in power, you don't know what, um, if, if what is being said about them and what they have done in office, uh, what they want to do is the truth or not. If that truth basis disappears, the whole basis for a democratic process and a democratic dialogue evaporates. And you cannot have democracy in a world of lies, so-called fake news. You know, as someone 
from the U.S., it's very evident this disagreement, as you're saying, about what truth is and actually the facts of the political process are are contested and this prevents democracy from functioning. And I think that's closely related with something that Kristen was saying, which is really high levels of polarization. And I think it's something that you can feel in the U.S., this animosity toward political opponents and the inability to even have conversations across the political divide. Um, and I think that's what uh, sets the foundation for the um, the willingness for people to even disbelieve anything their opponents are saying. So they're really closely related, this high levels of polarization, and then the expectation that uh, you know your opponents don't have access to truth or you're not likely to believe what they say. So I think all of these trends are interrelated and in the process of autocratization we're seeing around the world and then especially in the U.S. as well. So I, I do think within the United States that there are a number of things that you just laid out that people will recognize. And, you know, I think for me, one of the questions then becomes, well, what do we do about that? So, you know, if we're maintaining vigilance, what can we do uh, in order to to help reverse those trends? Yeah, that's a million dollar question. I think one thing that I'm convinced is that we need to find, and this is not only the United States, this is on a global scale. We need to find an answer to the question of how to limit freedom of expression in order to save it. So the, the parallel here is after World War II, and we had had Nazi parties and fascist parties and associations that then did away with democracy. Then the question was, how do we limit freedom of association in order to save it? Different countries came up with slightly different solutions, but there, that was the what to grapple with. Germany, for natural reasons, went the farthest, right, with a constitutional court and very tight restrictions. I mean, if you wear a Nazi symbol in Germany, you go to jail. It doesn't happen in the U.S. So it's, it was, a, but today, freedom of expression is used to undermine it both by spreading lies and so-called fake news, or was it alternative facts, which is a contradiction in terms, but also by threatening people. I don't know how many emails I'm gonna get after this, but I've been, I've been sort of attacked by both Trump people and by Erdogan's people in Turkey and Orban's people in Hungary for things I say to silence. And you as a journalist probably know this, when we know journalists across the world are increasingly being attacked, harassed, uh, and, and also killed. Look at what's going on in Mexico because of what they write. So, so, so it's, it's both the spread of conspiracy theories and false facts and uh, that undermine democracy, but also using the all these media for freedom of speech to attack and, and intimidate people uh, not to speak. So somehow, I don't have the solution of how, but it, somehow freedom of expression must be limited if we are gonna save it and save democracy. That will be a challenging concept for a lot of people because I think that freedom of expression is one of those hallmarks that we think of with democracy. And so the concept of limiting it in order to preserve it seems disassociated there. So that's, that's certainly something for us to consider. 
one of the things that I also found interesting in the report was the conversation around the rule of law. And uh, we have a tendency globally to think of the rule of law as always a positive concept. And we spend a fair amount of time here at the Jackson Center, and this will not be new to our audience, that that is not always the case. So as, as you both have, have been talking about autocracies and the autocratization, that a lot of that also comes about through changing the laws in order to make that behavior or make those repressions legal. And so how does, how does the Varieties of Democracy Institute think about the rule of law? I mean, we, we, uh, we measure the rule of law with a number of indicators if, you know, courts are impartial and treat people equally if there's access to justice and that sort of thing. And, and generally, in a democracy, it's a good thing, right? A democracy without a functioning rule of law is not as good of a democracy, if you like, as one with functioning rule of law. And it opens up for corruption and all kinds of things. Now, there's maybe never been a country with a stricter or more effective rule of law than Nazi Germany. So a dictatorship with a very strong rule of law can also use it for its own purposes. And, and countries going in that direction, in, in, and, and this Kelly talked about earlier, the changes when, when countries autocratize and become more less democratic or more autocratic are typically done by legal means. So to give you a concrete example, Erdogan uh, in Turkey has not necessarily broken the constitution at any point uh, since 2005. And around 2015, Turkey was no longer a democracy. It's gone even, become even worse now. But he changed the constitution twice by way of a, a referendum mm -hmm. with lots of propaganda and control over the media and control over civil society. He could get those referenda to change the constitution the way he wanted. So as to solidify and concentrate power in his hands. So. Yes, I mean, rule of law is, you may look at, upon it as a tool, like with a hammer, you can build a nice house, but with a hammer, you can also break somebody's head. Yeah, I would say I can just add on thinking about the U.S. case in particular, uh, as Stefan was saying, one of, the, one of the aspects in the sequence of autocratization in this contemporary wave um, is restricting the rights of everyone to participate in the political process so that basically the political system, the electoral system would benefit a particular actor, a particular party. Um, and, and I think that's something in the U.S. case we should be really attuned to is restrictions on the right to vote that, as you were saying, sometimes these changes are very gradual such that not everyone would even notice that they were happening or what kind of consequences they would have but restrictions on the ability to access ballots, to access polling centers, and these sorts of um, freedoms and basic aspects of the electoral process, I think are really essential to continued democratic governance. That makes, that makes good sense. That, that is certainly something that was top of mind for me as well. I'd like to turn to a new endeavor for you all, which is the case for democracy and learn about this new project uh, that, that you started last year and really get a sense of, you know, I think, I think one of the questions, and you both spoke to this in the intro was, you know, sort of what is democracy good for? 
And then uh, what is the case for democracy planning to look at this year? Yeah, I mean, the background for this, the case for democracy is about collating and gathering all the scientific evidence that's out there about ways in which democracies have dividends for regular people in concrete terms outside of ensuring our civil liberties and political rights, but health and economics and so on. And the, and the background was really that a lot of agencies, USAID, for example, or the European Commission and so on, and, and in turn to us, we have lots of interactions and said, what's the, what's the counter narrative to China? China is pushing their model of development without democracy, although now they call themselves a democracy. I saw in a white paper recently after the Biden summit, a true democracy that works. But regardless, they were pushing their model and saying, we're doing better. Look at our infant mortality is going down. Our economic growth is fantastic. We're building all these houses, industries, blah, blah, blah. What's the counter narrative to that? So that's where we started to gather what evidence is out there and the, the really top-notch scholars across the world that work in different fields. And, and the results are very clear. I can just mention with economic growth, that's been a long-standing debate in, for 60 years or so, but it's really now enormous amounts of evidence and very rigorous studies showing that democracies are better at producing economic growth than autocracies. The autocracies tend to become poor and very badly managed and bad for capital and bad for industrial growth and all that sort of stuff. There are a few exceptions, but they are exceptions, right? <laughs> and just talking about China as an exception, well, China under dictatorship in the last uh, 20 years have been pretty successful, but it wasn't that successful economically under Mao Zedong, right? So even within the same country, different periods. And, and countries uh, that democratize, if you compare to what would have happened if they didn't democratize, just as an example, they have a 20% higher GDP per capita growth over the following two decades than they would have had otherwise, right? And that's, that's pretty significant for ordinary people. And there are many other results here. Kelly, Kelly you can just fill in. Yeah, so I'll say um, I would point any listeners to to our website. We have all these uh, policy briefs published, and they're um, outlining sort of the cutting edge research, but in a really accessible way. So I think that's a great resource for anyone who's interested in the case for democracy. But we look not only at economic growth, but also at outcomes for the climate and other environmental outcomes. We look at the effect of democracy on uh, civil conflict and other also forms of interpersonal violence. And then we're looking, you had asked uh, what's coming up. So just to preview some of these new policy briefs that we've been working on, um, are, are looking at the effect of democracy on, uh, for instance, data access and transparency. So we find that not only do democracies uh, release more data to their citizens about actually what's going on in government and what sort of economic uh, patterns are happening, but also that data that they produce is more accurate. So we know that autocratic governments tend to lie about even their GDP uh, per capita and other forms of economic output. And so in, in democracies, we know that those outcomes are better. So that's one uh, new thing that we're working on. Also the outcomes of education, uh, corruption, and all sorts of things. So I really encourage 
encourage listeners to take a look at those resources. No. So just to illustrate on the health side, what Kelly was talking about, uh, there's very robust evidence that uh, being published in the top journals, like the Lancet number one in medicine, that going from uh, dictatorship, sort of worst kind of dictatorship to the best kind of uh, uh, democracy leads to a reduction in infant mortality by 94%, 94%. I mean, that's pretty important to people. It tends to be like if your kid die as an infant, it matters to you. So these are examples of some very concrete dividends that, that democracy comes with. Right, before we get to our lightning round, and if the audience has any questions, I'm going to ask you if there's anything you'd like to preview in the 2022 Democracy Report, since I know you are working on that and it's only uh, you know a few weeks from release. I hope that doesn't give either of you a nervous breakdown when I say that. Um, but is there anything you would like to preview for us in the 2022 report? No, we can't. Um, and for the very simple reason that uh, some of the data is still being processed, it's it's a it's a very rigorous process of calculating and then checking all the data that comes in. And we're talking about thirty million data, so it's it 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 takes a while. So we don't have the results yet. Okay. All right. So let me turn to our lightning round then, Kelly. I'm going to start with you. What do you wish people were paying more attention to? Yeah, I think sort of along the themes that we've already been talking about, but uh, in the U.S. and also uh, around the world, I think one of the most concerning things that's happening in democracies is the inability of uh, different actors to accept the results of elections. And I think that's true in the U.S., but also in other cases that are turning towards autocracy. So I think people should pay attention to the outcomes of elections and, uh, and accept the results this is a, a key hallmark of democratic governance. Stefan? Yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> okay, then Stefan, I'll start with you on this one. What are what would you name as the greatest threat to democracy at this point? China, Russia, Saudi Arabia, and the spread of lies and misinformation uncontrolled in social media and alternative media and what you want. And maybe, we don't know for sure, but maybe also this enormous increase in inequality across the world since basically uh, the mid-1980s, but getting very extreme at this point. Kelly? Uh, I would say polarization and also misinformation, and especially the combination of those two is a major threat. Kelly, I'll start with you on this one. What are some of the greatest opportunities? for democracy or democratic institutions or those studying democracy? Sure, I think the flip side of high levels of polarization around the world is that we have a great opportunity to establish communication across political divisions and pro-democracy coalitions. So I'd love to see uh, actors even with diverse uh, policy goals unite around a pro-democracy cause. And I think that's a, an opportunity. Stefan? The greatest opportunity for turning this wave of autocratization around and spreading democracy again in the world is popular mobilization. People organizing themselves and being on the streets and in big numbers. That's 
historically and evidence shows is, is the best. And at this point, I also think democratic states that are still democracies in the world need to get together and stand up together against uh, autocracies and the autocratization. Who else is doing interesting work? And Stefan, I'll start with you on that one. Bes- besides the VDEM team. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> but, but always, we are always here for the self-plug, so by all means. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, no. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a also there a wide variety of, of scholars and, and institutions doing very important and interesting work. Over there, uh, close to you in D.C., you have the Carnegie Foundation. They put out a lot of good work on this. And scholars I mentioned already, uh, Steve Levitsky, Dan Ziblatt, there are many, many others. That's great. Kelly, anyone you want to add to that list? Uh, Well, I'll have a self-plug if Stefan wouldn't do it. But um, I think what people might not know is we obviously have our team at VDEM that work here at the Institute. But we have, you know, hundreds of scholars around the world who are using our data and publishing really exciting research um, about democracy around the world. So if you go to our website, you can actually look at, we have uh, working papers published. So this is, you know, research that's hot off the press uh, or in progress from scholars, not only here at VDEM, but also who are working with our data. And I think that's a really great resource as well for, for listeners. Okay. And then the last thing is we always like to leave our audience with something to learn or something to listen to or think about. So I will ask you both for some some suggestions on that. Who should we be reading, listening to podcasts, whatever it is? And Kelly, I'll start with you on that one. Sure. So I'll I'll just say this again. Uh, We both mentioned this work, but the book How Democracies Die by Steve Levitsky and Daniel Zablot is a a great resource and particularly timely for the U.S. case. So I think that's essential reading um, on democracy and contemporary autocratization. Okay. And Stefan, who would you add to that? I second that. And uh, I would also add, if, you, if you're interested in, in these threats to democracy in the world, and a very passionate and, and well-informed take on that by Larry Diamond, Ill Winds, that came out just the other year. So, so that, that's also to be recommended, I think, among many. There are many we could mention. <laughs> Well, and feel free to email me some of those as well. We um, often put together a little reading list or a listening list for our audience as well. So they have other resources to tap into. So I would like to thank you both. Let me do a quick program announcement. So on February 16th, we will be celebrating Jackson Day in Warren. Professor Matt Stylin, who is a professor at the University at Buffalo School of Law, will be helping us commemorate the 70th anniversary of the Steel Seizure uh, Supreme Court case here in the United States that really Jackson's uh, concurring opinion in that really laid out the rubric under which we analyze presidential and executive power still today. So he will be talking at the Warren County Courthouse. So if you are in the area, please feel free to join us. It is a free program. It will be February 16th at 7 p.m. If you are not here locally, you can uh, sign up on our website. We will send you a Zoom link so you can participate remotely, but we look forward to that. And then our next tea will be the fourth Thursday in February, February 24th also at 3 p.m. Eastern. So look forward to seeing you then. Stefan and Kelly, thank you so very much 
for joining us for tea today. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to continuing this conversation with you both. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. You have been listening to Liberty Under Law, the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center. Our podcast is edited by Connor Keenan. Original theme music for Liberty Under Law by Bryson Barnes. I'm Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center and your host. Content for this episode was drawn from Tea Time with the Jackson Center, a series of Facebook Live events produced by the Jackson Center, whose mission is to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, United States Supreme Court Justice and Chief United States Prosecutor for the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg. We envision a world where the universal principles of equality, fairness, and justice prevail. As a nonprofit organization, the Jackson Center's mission is made possible in great part through philanthropic gifts. To learn more about the Jackson Center, our programming, and how you can support our mission, please visit www.roberthjackson.org. You can connect with us and ask questions of our guests through our website, We're also on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, remember to subscribe and share with your friends.